Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Margot Livesey, whose latest novel is Mercury. Uh, other books include Homework, The Flight of Gemma Hardy, The House on Fortune Street, The Missing World from the 90s, and I interviewed you way back when. We were both comparing notes on that interview. You write, I guess they call it psychological thrillers. I'm not sure what exactly the term is. I think of myself as perhaps in the tradition of someone like Ian McEwan, maybe. I think of something like books like, say, Chesil Beach or Atonement uh, or The Child in Time. You, and I think what people mean when they say I write psychological thrillers is that there is true suspense and that my characters face very difficult decisions and you really don't know what they're going to do and neither do they often until quite late in the novel. When you're writing it, do you know what they're going to do? Having written a, a couple of novels that were destined for recycling, I do usually have a destination for my characters, but how we're going to get there is quite mysterious. In terms of Mercury, the framework of the book there are three parts of the book where the first part leads up to an event. The second part, we go back and see the event from another perspective, and then we move on from the event. In that case, you knew the event because you have to know the event when you're walking in, right? Yes, I did know that, that there was going to be this pivotal event that would catapult my characters, my couple, Don, Donald and Viv, into a very difficult situation, which would really polarize their relationship. So let, let's go back a little. Okay, you've written uh, Flight of Gemma Hardy. This is a historical novel taking place back in the 50s and 60s, right? It took place mostly in 1960s Scotland, and it was my attempt at reimagining Jane Eyre. So Gemma is a 10-year-old orphan who, like Jane, finds herself going to a terrible school and then, like Jane, goes out into the world and encounters both good fortune and bad fortune. So you finish that book, which is kind of a throwback to a different era, and you're looking for another book. And I found an interview where you said... I'm trying a new challenge, writing a novel about America. Now, you've lived in America for a long time, but you come from Scotland. Is this your first venture into writing about America? It is. I have had Americans in earlier novels, uh, one or perhaps two, and sometimes my British characters have been allowed to come to America on holiday, but they've always promptly gone back to Britain. So this was my first attempt to write a novel in really entirely set here. That brings up the question, when you say it was a, a challenge, what exactly did you mean? Because you live here. Yes, I do, Richard. But I think what was challenging was 
finding a voice for my American characters that wasn't satirical or flippant and that really seemed um, to come out of the deepest part of them. So I didn't want them just to be parodies saying things like wow and gee and neat and uh, awesome all the time. I was trying to find a voice that reflected how I think the Americans around me actually speak. And that was quite difficult. It's mostly difficult, I think, in the midsection when you're writing from the, from the perspective of Viv, the American. At least Donald has the advantage of being being from uh, from Britain. So it, you're kind of moving in there slowly, I would guess. Yes. And I think, I mean, you could see me cautiously approaching America. I came here, but I have one character who comes from Britain and is very closely allied to Britain. So that was a help. So you finished this takeoff on Jane Eyre, on yes. Bronte, and you're looking around. You know you want to write about America. You decide to write about a couple and obsession. At what point did that come in, and at what point did the horse Mercury come in? I think a, a number of things, as it often happens in novels, a number of things came together. I had a long-standing interest in ambition which is often a slightly negative quality. When we say she's an ambitious woman, we don't mean it in a wholly complimentary way often. And then if that becomes obsession, it's definitely a negative. And I had ridden as a girl in Scotland um, and remained interested in the world of horses, though I haven't ridden much as an adult. And I was interested in the passion people bring to horses. And I thought a horse was a wonderful object for ambition that might turn into something else. If Viv, for instance, had been looking for a cure for diabetes in a very ruthless, single-minded way, we'd all be standing by applauding. But trying to be a champion equestrian is probably more questionable, given the choices she ends up making. And I also wrote a column for the Boston Globe in 2009 uh, in which I described my efforts to purchase a gun in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which turns out to be surprisingly complicated. And I was very struck by the uh, considerable response that the column elicited and by the very negative both emails and phone calls that I got about it. And so you realized, okay, I've got ambition, I've got a gun. Well, the gun is good because you're going to have an event <laughs> and yes. you want to play that in. But now you've got the horse. What brings you to the couple, Donald and Viv? I was interested in part in writing about the contrast, if you will, between American exceptionalism, you know, you can grow up to be president, and Donald's attitude, which is the Scottish attitude, which is that's ridiculous. Only one person can grow up to be president or only one or two. So I really wanted to put together a British person who'd come to America, a sort of counterpart, if you will, to Portrait of a Lady and, um, and an American who's much more exuberant and optimistic and spontaneous. And then you have to figure out what's going to happen. So you know Viv is going to be interested in the horse, a horse at that point. Yeah. And then you make Donald an optometrist, ophthalmologist, whatever, a surgeon. How did that come in? 
I think of vision as really fascinating. Um, I'm someone who's worn contact lenses for decades, so I spend quite a lot of time visiting optometrists and letting them gaze into my eyes. And I just think the whole um, physiognomy of vision is very interesting, but also the idea of politicians and saints and artists having visions, uh, the idea that we can manipulate our vision, you know, things like the duck rabbit shape or the Rorschach tests, um, that there's, a, there's something about vision that we both count on it so much and yet it can be so unreliable that's particularly fascinating. Is that the reason that you then made his best friend Jack going blind and blind? Of course it is in part. I think blindness too is extremely interesting. I'm the counterpart to vision. And again, there's you know, a great deal of um, mythology is not quite the right word, but there are wonderful stories about blindness, perhaps starting with Helen Keller as our most famous blind person and and the very considerable distinctions between people who have been blind from birth and people who go blind later in life and understand what they've lost. Did, did you do research on, uh, on the work on blind people? Did you talk to any? I do know a couple of people who are blind who talk to me. And, of course, I did what I always do, which is to read books. And I phoned an incredibly patient librarian at the Perkins School for the Blind and asked questions like, how does a blind person know how much money they have in their wallet, for instance? How? By the way, it's folded. So they fold a $5 bill differently from a one. Exactly. One other element, Margot Livesey, is grief, because it turns out that the book also involves Donald not seeing things, there's <laughs> the word seeing, because he's dealing with the death of his father. And how did that come in? My own parents, I mean, my biological parents died when I was quite young. And I have, uh, I'm happy to say, a wonderful and large adopted family. I adopted them. And uh, in 2008, my beloved adopted father died. And I was struck at the time uh, by how um, distracted I was, you know, how hard it was for me to read a chapter of a book or have an extended conversation. I, I wasn't constantly reaching for boxes of Kleenex. I was wandering around a supermarket saying, what on earth am I meant to be shopping for? And I, talking to other people, I discovered that was actually quite a common situation to be in, that grief didn't take quite the shapes that we sometimes think it will. Well, in this particular case, it takes the shape of somebody who is not completely aware of what's going on around him, I guess. Yeah, Donald fails to notice that he does notice Viv's initial interest in Mercury to some extent, but he just thinks, oh, it's another horse she's interested in. And it takes him a long time to realize, no, Mercury is a very exceptional horse and she is exceptionally interested in him. At what point did the title Mercury come? I mean, you named the horse Mercury, and then you named the book Mercury. I was casting around for a title, and I thought that Mercury was a very resonant word with all the different meanings. Um, Mercury, the messenger god. Mercury, the smallest planet. Mercury, the toxic metal. 
um, Mercury um, is the patron uh, god of thieves and confidence men and also the god of eloquence. So how he does all this in a single, in a single being is not quite clear, but I thought it was a very evocative name. The story itself, we have part one, again, leading up to the event from Donald's point of view, part two from Viv's, and part three, the after effects, again, from Donald. That means that on some level, you had to work all of that out before you even began writing, or how did that process work? I I wish I had worked it all out in advance, Richard. I wrote up, I wrote the Donald section fairly fluently to the to the crucial event. And I had originally actually planned to continue the novel in his point of view, but I began to feel that was shortchanging something important because one of the things I was most interested in was how Viv, a basically good middle class person of um you know, who aspires to be upstanding. How did how does she come to take the steps she takes? And I felt to really understand that I had to be inside her and that to have it all filtered through Donald would limit what I could do. It also opens the door of turning Donald into kind of an unreliable narrator. It does, and he does prove to be unreliable or reluctant or secretive in certain ways, all things that I think he would be very surprised to discover. One of the key elements that he's missing is the point of view of his kids. He doesn't get them at all, and Viv does, which we find out in the second section. Yes, and yet at the same time I would say that he does love his children and really aspires to be a good father. He is, he may be absent, but it is not because he intends to be absent. And I think that, you know, some of his own difficulties as a child being he comes to America when he's 10 and he finds it a very difficult transition to be transplanted to America. And some of that has, has left its permanent mark on him in relationship to his children. There's another element. He has no sense of humor and everybody around him knows it. But of course, he doesn't know it. And we don't really know it until we find out from other people. Uh, was that ever intentional or are you hearing this for the first time? I'm hearing this for the first time. I mean, he does claim that he has a sense of humor. You just won't see it in the narrative that he's about to tell. But other people say, well, you're kind of a sour guy. <laughs> you're a sour Scotsman. He's a bit of a dour Scotsman. And one of the pleasures, in fact, of his friendship with Jack is that Jack teases him, jokes, and does have a sense of humor. You had to go through a lot of revisions going back and forth to get it right? I did go through quite a lot of revisions. Partly, I think it's a reflection of my relationship with research, which is I tend to do research on a need-to-know basis. So I come to something and I think, oh, I need to know more about blindness or horses or optometrists and then I go and find out so that does tend to mean quite a lot of revising and doubling back when you're doing that do you notice any themes that maybe you weren't fully conscious of in the earlier draft that now you can kind of expand on or not 
I do notice things in revising that um, sometimes I'm slow to recognize. I mean, I knew the ostensible plot of the novel and the ostensible theme, but then there were other layers I began to discover about privacy and separateness and what it means to make certain choices, what it means to perhaps be in a situation where you have to choose between your children and your wife. At that point, are you also trying to kind of work out the pacing and building the suspense too? And how, how do you go about doing that? Or is it just instinctive after so many books? I wish it were instinctive. I care as a reader. I really love reading books where I feel not a word is wasted, and I aspire to write such books. So I'm always trying to be as economical as possible, perhaps not quite as economical as, say, Elmore Leonard, who you know, famously said, I leave out everything other people put in. But, right. but I'm still trying to write short novels if I possibly can. And I really wanted this novel to get faster and faster as it went on, like perhaps a horse in a race, as if Mercury were picking up speed. Does that mean that as you're working on it, you're kind of going, well, this is really interesting about eyes or about horses, but it's got to go? It absolutely does. So, for instance, I discovered that one of the characters in the novel is an African grey parrot called Nabokov, whom Donald and Viv have inherited from Donald's father after he dies. And I started doing all this research into African grey parrots, and Henry VIII had an African grey. And suddenly I thought, wait a minute, that's not all going to go in a novel. The novel's about Mercury, not Nabokov. But you put him in anyway. Why did you bring in the parrot? Well... I had heard this wonderful story about um, Ken Kesey having this parrot that he had inherited from Neil Cassidy. And the parrot would do riffs in Neil Cassidy's voice long after Cassidy was dead. And so I loved the idea of a parrot that would continue the dead father's voice. It also means that he's constantly reminded back to his father. And even though his father is not in the book, I mean, he's gone at the beginning, but his father's presence is felt throughout. I also felt, maybe I'm wrong, that his mother took on a larger role than maybe you would intended? That is true. I, I hadn't expected, I mean, I'd thought she was going to be a sort of background family member, and then she does become a more resonant figure. She becomes a kind of companion to Viv because they're... They're both businesswomen. They both know about juggling work and children. And she also becomes a, another source of um, isolation for Donald when she takes up with a new partner after his father's death. A question I ask a lot of writers, and maybe listeners are getting bored by it, but I'm going to throw it out anyway because I'm always interested. Everybody gives me a different answer. Uh, that characters kind of go off on their own and they sort of tell you or don't tell you what they're going to do. And sometimes people say, well, I'm kind of channeling it. And sometimes people say I'm in control. How does that work for you? I think of character as being at the heart of my novels. I mean, I write tightly plotted novels, but character is is the main focus. And I, I think for me, it's a, a combination. Um, 
Sue Miller once said to me, oh, um, my characters are my employees. And I haven't quite managed to establish that relationship with them. But at the same time, I'm also not siding with, say, the Russian novelist Pushkin, who wrote of one of his characters, my Stella has run off and got married. I never would have expected it of her. So I'm somewhere in between. As my characters grow more complex, more substantial, if you will, then they become capable of greater surprises. When you say surprises, what does that mean to you? Surprises for me means moments where, as in life, a character reaches in, out in some unexpected way, does some unexpected thing. It could be as, as small as a joke or a turn of phrase. Well, when you say that, does, do you just mean that you're sort of writing and suddenly, boom, a character does something? I mean, I can pick a couple of characters, which is our blind character, Jack, and the woman who about a third of the way in becomes his girlfriend, Hillary. Right. And they start... As opposed to Viv and Donald, who are the main characters, they start having lives of their own. And at one point they fight. Would that be an example of them doing something or did you know that was always there? I did have in mind that Jack and Mercury's owner would become romantically involved. And I should say that one one of the complications of the novel is that Viv loves Mercury, but she does not actually own the horse. But I didn't know, for instance, that uh, Donald would feel really chagrined when he discovers that Jack and Hillary have become lovers. So when you say he becomes chagrined, I mean, are you suddenly just writing and you hear something in your head and go, oh, he wouldn't like it that way? Or I'm writing. I, I, it's hard to reproduce what what happens, Richard. But I think what it is is I, I'm writing, and Jack is saying, you, you know, we've become in, Hillary and I have become involved, and suddenly I think, oh, that's actually going to be hard for Donald because he thought he, in a certain way, owned Jack. That Jack was always available for him as a friend, and now Jack isn't going to be available. He's going to come with Hillary. And it never occurs to him, of course that Viv might have feelings about his separate relation with Jack, which never even comes up in the book. Exactly. And, and, I, and I think of that kind of myopia as being extremely human, that we all imagine our own inner lives as extremely complex, but we don't always grant that complexity to the people around us. You set the book very specifically, I think, in 2011. 2010, 2011, yeah. yes. Why Why did you choose a specific time? It didn't really need to be specific. Well, there were a couple of reasons. One, I wanted it to be a year when there was an extremely cold winter. One of the things I love about America, or the East Coast of America, I should say apologetically, is that often there's lots of snow, and I've always found that really thrilling and exciting. And I also wanted to choose a moment that wasn't too politically charged or complicated. I felt that the 2008 recession and the immediate aftermath would complicate the plot of my novel in a number of ways. So I wanted to choose a moment that seemed, as far as things ever do nowadays, relatively stable. So at that point, you don't have to talk about presidential elections. You don't have to talk about mortgage crises. It's just 
Yeah, exactly. Foreclosures don't need to come up. Or, I mean, I know all these things are still going on, but I can sort of ignore them. And the purpose of ignoring those sorts of events, I mean, obviously, if you were writing a book about the second half of 2016, you know, you'd be caught in the election from hell, right? Yes. Why did you find it necessary to set this at a time when nothing else was happening? Was it just merely for the focus? It was partly for the focus. It was partly because one of the things that really interested me about Viv and Donald was a different kind of infidelity, that they are a couple who come together, um, both being fairly left-wing, liberal, believing in all kinds of causes, public schools, um, environmental issues, gun control, they campaign for Obama, etc., etc. And that they are going to find um, themselves heading in different directions. Donald persists in clinging to those values and Viv changes her mind about a couple of of crucial issues. The one we see first is that after passionately espousing public schools, she wants to send Marcus to a private school. And then, of course, she has to go out and buy a gun. That becomes another key element there. I think what it also does is we use politics to bring us together. Yes. And if you're not talking politics and you're not talking sports, then there's a vacuum there. I think. Yes. And I just I'm still thinking about your last excellent question. I I recently reread James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room. And one of the things I was really interested to discover that Baldwin made his narrator white because he said to make him black would be, he already had so much going on in the novel that to make him black would be too much. And I think I felt that I already had a lot going on in the novel and to have too much happening in the background that I needed to take account of would overburden my narrative. Um, and obviously, I wouldn't have called one character Donald and another Hillary <laughs> if I had known how things were going to develop. Naming characters. I mean, you have characters, Donald and Hillary. When all of this began happening and the book was on the verge of being published, had you thought about maybe changing the names? I have to confess that I didn't because I suppose that... You know, it was more than a year ago that we were doing things like copy editing and moving towards um, advanced reading copies. And I still thought that the name Donald was a, a good old-fashioned Scottish name that nobody would hear too often. And that my character Hillary was a rather a somewhat minor character and um, nobody would care. <laughs> So I'm afraid I was very politically naive. At what point did you realize, oh, damn? I have to confess, I realized in June I was um, addressing a conference of booksellers, independent booksellers in New England. And as I began to speak, I thought, oh, my goodness, these characters are called Donald and Hillary, and look where we're going. Margot Livesey, let's talk a little bit about your career. Wikipedia said you grew up in a boys' private school in Scotland? Is that correct? 
It is correct, though not quite in the way that your smile suggests. Um, my father taught at this boys' private school and we lived in a house in the grounds of the school. So the main school was about a mile away. And it was and is a very beautiful place. The school was founded by William Gladstone the same year Jane Eyre was published. And it, it was a wonderful place to be a child and a harder place to be a teenager. So you were kind of alone as a teenager, the only girl around there? No, my adopted family was also living there. So I had um, my sisters and, a bro and brothers there, I had four children to be friends with. So your parents died very young? Or? My mother, Eva, um, whom I tried to write about in my novel, Eva Moves the Furniture, died when I was two and a half, and my father died when I was 22. I lived with my father and my stepmother, whom uh, I thought was a lot like the cruel aunt in Jane Eyre, someone who had never wanted a child, and I, w I was just the unfortunate accessory that my father brought to the marriage. But Merrill and Roger, also teaching at the school, lived nearby, so I spent a great deal of time with them. And then when my father died, just sort of moved in with them, in effect. At what point did you realize you wanted to write? I was quite slow to realize I wanted to write. I had serial ambitions. Um, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I wanted to be a nun, although I didn't know any Catholics. I wanted to be Marie Curie because I thought what could be cooler than discovering a new element. And then when I was 21, I went traveling with my boyfriend of the time, and he was writing a book. We went traveling around Europe and North Africa. And I don't know if you've ever watched anyone write a book, but it's quite boring. So I decided I would write a book of my own. But not having a subject, I, of course, was going to write a novel. I mean, I wasn't going to write a history of the fruitcake. That's how you started. And you were a waitress for a while? I spent much of my 20s waitressing in either Toronto or London. Uh, and um, having written a very bad novel while traveling with my boyfriend, I then began to try to write short stories, thinking I would make mistakes in a smaller number of pages. So w what got you finally published? I think one thing that finally got me published was realizing that things in my own life could be interesting enough to write about. The first story I got published was about a waitress who hitchhikes home after work through the city of Toronto, which is what I regularly did. I would just stand in the main road and hold out my hand and someone would stop. This tells you how old I am. And I wrote a quite short story about that. And when it was published, it, it sort of opened a door for me to think I can look more closely at the world around me as well as use my imagination. And the novel, the first novel, you finally said, okay, I'm going to try again? I finally reluctantly started writing something that I couldn't make work as a short story, but I thought it was a very good idea. And as it got longer and longer, I began to realize it involved the N-word novel. <laughs> <laughs> At a certain point, you stopped waitressing and began teaching. How did that happen? Well, I think it's a little absurd and could really only happen in America. I had a friend who was teaching at Tufts University, and she said, oh, why not write to the chairman and see if he needs someone to teach? You, you'd be qualified. You've published some stories. 
And I thought it was really implausible, but I wrote him a letter and someone dropped out at the last moment in August. And, of course, I just hung up my apron at the restaurant and headed for the library. And at that point, you were teaching writing or teaching English? or I was teaching um, those kinds of composition courses that almost all freshmen do at, at universities. Uh, you wound up at Iowa at some point? I visited the Iowa Writers' Workshop uh, a couple of times in the 90s and um, then again in 2005 or six. and I... I'm now very happily uh, teaching there as permanent, I have a permanent half-time position. If I recall correctly, one of the focuses of Iowa is the use of voice. Is that still? I would say the focus of Iowa is good writing and the program, I'm happy to say, has become increasingly diverse. So it, maybe it would be more correct to say good voices. We have many voices in the workshop at the moment, and that's um, very enriching, I think, for both faculty and students. How far can you teach writing? I've thought about that a lot as someone who never went to a workshop and uh, you know, just had a, a couple of mentors rather briefly. There are certain things you can very specifically teach, and that I can teach my students in six months what it took me six years to learn. You can learn things on your own, of course you can, but being in a workshop, being in a classroom can hopefully accelerate that process and it can help you bring writing from the margins of your life closer to the centre because no one is waiting for our novels and stories. I wish it were not so. Well, when you say you can teach, is, is it just kind of like the mechanicals of pacing or what to cut, which I think is probably the single most important thing. I think it's, you're right, it's absolutely crucial. Well, for instance, I can suggest to my students how they might write better dialogue, what the mysterious nature of dialogue is, how it isn't exactly how we speak to each other, but it has to sound as if it is closely related to how we speak to each other. Or I can say to them, think about think about setting, think about sending your characters on a small journey because sending them on a journey can enable you to show certain psychological changes and have them encounter some difficulties. This is going to come out of the blue, but I've been thinking about this a lot, mainly because of a couple of novelists I've spoken with recently. The way we communicate has changed drastically with the advent of texting. Do you ever think about how that would play a role in, say, writing a novel? That the conversations that people have, I mean, obviously in a film, you want people meeting and the phone calls don't quite work. Right. In a book, a phone call and meeting in person don't matter because it's dialogue. I mean, you know, it's sound of voice and what they're thinking. Text is something else. Have you ever thought about how to bring in that, or is it not something that you even think about? No, I'm, I'm really, I mean, interested in how modern technology is changing relationships. Um, I watch novelists struggling um, to make their plots work in the days of, e.g., the mobile phone, the email. You see people setting their plots before a certain period in, 19, in the 90s to, right. so as not to have to worry about those things. 
And I do think that all these new methods of communication ha have a role to play in in the novel. Um, I'm happy that in Mercury I do at least occasionally have people text and I'm happy that I make good use of the internet because I think that reflects how people are, are living in the 21st century. Yeah, I interviewed a writer who had a younger couple, somewhat younger than, than uh, Donald and Viv and more L.A.-based, and it turned out almost like half the novel, the discussions were all texting. And I asked him about it. He said, well, that's how we live. But I think it takes something away because you can't create voice in the same way through texting. No, and I think I was the editor for a literary magazine, fiction editor for a literary magazine called Plowshares for a number of years. And so I did get to read quite a lot of early stories using first lots of emails and then lots of texts. And I do think it's hard to get that um, distinctive individual voice in a text. So, for instance, people tend to use exclamation marks much more freely in texts to convey emotion or tone than we do in real life or in ordinary speech. Well, you're still, of course, going to have to indicate what the person is thinking anyway. But I, I think that, you know, the old Elmore, Elmore Leonard page of dialogue, right, with yes. nothing else, sort of needs to change a little because you can't get that sense of personality from the two people. I, th I think that's true. And I, I mean, I go back to a novel like... Philip Roth's The Human Stain say. I mean, he has these wonderful page-long speeches, and I I love how talkative some of his characters are and how he will push speech to sort of a limit. And I've never managed to do that myself, but I, I notice that a lot of writers nowadays... It, their characters speak for only a couple of lines, you know, and I, I miss the longer speech. Do you ever sit there and, uh, this is a dialogue question, when you're writing dialogue, sit there, say it aloud to yourself to see if it makes sense? I do, yes. It, it, it looks a little bit daft when I do it, but <laughs> I do read my dialogue aloud to make sure it, it, that a voice can get itself round the sentences. Margot Livesey, I looked you up in IMDb. You're not there. Had what is IMDb? Oh, I'm sorry. I've blown it. <laughs> no. <laughs> IMDb, Internet Movie Database. It's basically the place where you look, and I've learned, to look up what people have done in terms of film, TV, not theater. You've not had any movies made from your books and there doesn't seem to be any indication that anybody approached you. Is that correct or not? The first part is correct. There is still not a film based on any of my novels. The second part, no. Actually, um, I think almost all my novels at various times have been optioned for film. And they've got to different stages um, and unfortunately have not yet got to the point of being made. I, I I've, have a huge respect for filmmakers because it is so hard nowadays to make a film. Well, when I look at something like Mercury, I'm thinking, oh, this would be a really nice six-part BBC America miniseries because it's about characters interacting right. and it's about horses, it's about the outdoors. So it could work. I think it absolutely could work, but um, we need a person with a certain vision <laughs> to come along and think that too. <laughs> 
Margot Livesey, now you've written Mercury and it's come out. Are you working on your next yet? I am poised to plunge into a new novel. Uh, for the last six months, I've actually been working on a book of essays about the craft of writing. It's called The Hidden Machinery. And uh, I try to address some of the questions you ask, Richard, to suggest some of the things that can be taught and also some of the things that can't be taught. Maybe I'll, if you're on tour, I'll get you back in. That would be fabulous. You've been listening to an interview with Margot Livesey, whose latest novel is titled Mercury. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.